Discussing the commodities markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors, and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby. Hello and welcome to Commodity Watch Radio. I'm Dominic Frisby and we have an absolutely cracking lineup of guests for you in this special New Year's show. Jim Rogers, Mark Farber, James Turk, Michael Hampton, Campbell Smythe, Dave Skarika and Zapata George Blake all tell us what they think is in store for us in 2008. Most of them agree on one thing. Gold is going up. This is a long old show and the best way to listen to it is to upload it to your iPod or mobile phone and listen to it when you're out and about, perhaps in your car, just as you would the radio. And a reminder of the dreaded disclaimer, guests on this show are just expressing their opinions. Nothing you hear constitutes advice to buy or sell anything. That's about it. Let's crack on. Commodity Watch Radio at Mindsight.com. Campbell Smythe is based in Perth in Australia. He's advisor to the Phoenix Gold Fund. He's also a private investor who puts a lot of his own money into junior resource stocks. And he's been in this mining game since the very bottom in 2000. He knows the junior resource sector better than most. And with his dad, the chairman of Cityview, um, junior resources is very much the family business. Campbell, welcome back to Commodity Watch Radio. Hi. Thank you, Dominic. Um, what does 2008 have in store for us? Well, I hope it's an easier year than 2007. Um, we've had a pretty frustrating time, actually. It's been a uh, year of real sort of trading opportunities. Um, we've seen a lot of uh, stocks move and then lose uh, lose their gains as the um, markets went bad. Um, I think today the uh, HUI is something up something like 17% year-to-date, while the gold price is up about 25% year-to-date. So that shows you how the gold shares have underperformed. Um, I'm hoping 2008 will actually see the uh, the gold price finally um, break out of its uh, of its trading ranges and uh, really make a run for it, which will actually give these shares of something to think about. Um, I uh, we're, in the Phoenix Fund, we've actually been quite aggressively positioned in the last few months. Uh, we had a large cash position in September and October, and uh, we've been deploying that gradually in the last month or so, uh, in possibly one of the hardest markets I've ever seen. Um, I'm is it that hard? The hardest market, one of the hardest you've ever seen? Oh, it's been awful. I mean, it's Canadian, this Canadian tax loss season has been brutal. Uh, I've, I've seen, well, I mean, the prime example is things like Lahir Gold in Australia lost 30% in a week. Uh, Goldfield South Africa has lost something like 30% in a couple of weeks. Now, these are majors. I mean, the, to actually see what's happened in the junior sector, I mean, it's uh, we've seen stocks lose 70, 80%. I mean, I've, I've, I've actually uh, been quite amazed by how how 
poor these things have been performing in the, in the space of such a high commodity price. Would you? Um, who'd, ever, who'd have ever thought that at an $800 gold price, you'd be sitting here watching gold shares do um, go backwards? I mean, it's just been crazy. Yeah, and um, a lot of them are kind of trading as though gold's at four or five hundred dollars. They're at the same price. Yeah, that ex- exactly. I mean, I, I, either either the market is uh, forecasting a lower gold price next year, or we're stupid. I, I really don't know. I mean, right now it's um it's been a, it's been a baffling set of circumstances, and all the all I can say is that thank God, some smarter people than me are baffled as well because uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm scratching my head sometimes. I've kind of thought it's because um, the market is less averse to risk and uh, because there's less fl- cash flying about. I mean, do you think that's why? Or uh, I, I think there's an absolute surfeit of cash. I mean, you just have to see the big investments these big sovereign wealth funds are making in these massive US banks uh, to see how much cash there is flying around the system and BHP sort of take over Rio, etc. But for the junior sector, it seems like there's been an absolute drought. Um, I, I think what the investors have been doing is they've just they've just had a, they come off a very good year last year and they've all taken profits and they've all probably got horrendous tax bills and haven't had to fund those. And then uh, you've had um, uh, situations where this credit market event has just caused a real erosion of trust and equities and indeed anything. So there's been a flight to cash. Um, I mean, the US dollar has actually had a quite a serious bounce from its lows, uh, which I, I guess was overdue, but I never expected it to be this big a bounce. Uh, and I think that's what's, what's impacted um, uh, this, these sort of gold shares and these mining shares as well, because people just sold them and just taken taken cash, and uh, a lot of people are just sitting in dollars and cash right now. Interestingly, the the gold price it hasn't really affected the gold price that dramatically. The no, no, no. The actually, when you look at the euro and Swissy, Swiss Swiss uh, gold price, um, it's broken out. We, we've actually got a real market on our hands. Uh, I'm I, I'm quite optimistic right now. I mean, in dollar terms, it's it's been frustrating, but when you actually look at it in the currencies that the real wealth of the, of the world is held in these days, and I'm, I'm hoping that's not going to antagonise American listeners. Um, <laughs> uh, the um, the the gold price is looking very good, so I I think next year is is our year. Finally, we've we've been we've been praying for it for a long time, and certainly we've been uh, we've we've had a, a good run. I mean, I, I can't complain about the performance we've had this year. Phoenix is up about thirty percent or something. Um, I'm, I'm not really sure to date what it is. Been a lot higher, but uh, we've had some pullbacks in the last few weeks, um, and uh, I, I think the, uh, the the market will probably probably get better in our little patch. Uh, the gold shares of the market cap class is, is tiny. I mean, I th- I've, someone used to use the gold analogy of the entire uh, gold market could fit into um, Coca-Cola four times over or something. I, I'm not really sure what the what simile is these days, but the uh, it's still the same. I mean, most of these shares which we trade are in the region of 25 to 50 million market cap. Um, and that, that's really the growth opportunities because you have these sort of stories like Aqualine Resources, which uh, we used to own a market cap of 10 million bucks and it's sitting here at a market cap of about 350, 400 million dollars now. So um, uh, we've had some huge growth stories in these things uh, mm-hmm. in the last few years, but the, that's, all, that's what Phoenix is all about. We, we kind of look for the next sort of growth opportunity. Um, yeah. My things for this next year, uh, I think this credit turmoil keep, keeps going. Um, there's been a colossal band-aid put on the system, um, $500 billion in the last week or so, just to try and get us through in the year. Um, I think that's a great band-aid, but as we all know, and uh, Mr. Gartman always says, there's never one cockroach. Um, <laughs> I really like that expression. <laughs> um, I think the cockroaches keep coming, and I think the system keeps unraveling. Uh, but the band-aids will get bigger and bigger and bigger. And in that environment, gold should actually perform because you're getting that inflationary environment. 
Do you have a view on base metals? Uh, it's pretty hard, really. Uh, I'm, I think some of them are actually quite cheap. I mean, zinc and lead, for instance, have had huge setbacks uh, from their highs. And I think the actual the fundamental story is, is still the same. I mean, China, Asia, etc., is is rebuilding, um, and you've got these this huge demand for these base metals. Some of the base metal forecasting agencies are forecasting surpluses next year and things like copper and zinc. And I just don't believe it. I reckon the world is uh, still um, consuming these things at a rate of faster than they can produce them. Um, I don't think there's any stockpiles. I think there's recycling is very, very slow to actually to gear up. And I think the base metals stay tight. Um, the the funds that were actually pushing them around are probably pulling their horns in a lot as a result of this credit market. So perhaps a lot of the juice that was involved in the speculative end of it is actually going to be less. Um, so uh, there's been a lot of trading in these metals. Uh, I think um, the actual big companies are still aiming to, to acquire each other, and you've got every time a good deposit comes up, it's seriously up for um, for an M&A situation. So the big guys think that these these metals are of, uh, of value, and therefore I think they're they're trying to take they're trying to uh, accumulate. So my view is you don't try and fight the system, and you just sit there and just. You just try and buy them when they're on the, on the knees, which is what they are now. Um, I'm probably a bit more confident on iron and, uh, and coal than I am on both metals. The Aussies are very bullish on iron ore and uh, and coal, and I think this is because uh, nearly every single gram of iron and coal being mined here is being shipped up north. Uh, and we, we're constantly getting Chinese companies coming down here and buying deposits. Um, I, I'm getting the smell that there is actually still a lot of speculative energy in the in these metals. Uh, from a specific point of the junior junior investments in these things, I think that this game is keep, going to keep going. Um, one of my biggest stupid stupid errors this year is to uh, not buy Fortescue, and uh, I, my biggest error the year before was not to buy Fortescue, um, <laughs> and, and probably the year before it was not to buy Fortescue. Uh, <laughs> and for anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about, it's gone from twenty cents to sixty-seven dollars. Um, oh my goodness so, me! Uh, so, so for for a Christmas present, that would have been quite nice. Um, but there is a lot of juniors around in Australia which do have pretty serious projects, and they they are going to keep. Performing, I think, because with these sort of events of uh, of um, these these majors just buying, uh, like trying to either merge or uh, Fortescue busting into the big end of town, there there is um, there, there is a big game going on in iron. BHP has have said they want to move from a uh, a contract price and negotiations every year to us to a spot price, and that is uh, a real. Bit of strength in the in the market. If that actually happens, it's going to turn the turn the industry on its ear. Uh, the Chinese really will have to struggle to um to keep prices down. So, I I think uh, that will be a big boost. Um, the coal price is the same. I mean, there's um, a lot a lot of the coal projects I'm I'm seeing actually getting rated strongly around here. So, coal juniors are actually doing quite well. There's one I follow called Churchill Mining, which has uh, had a very good run on it, on its Indonesian coal project. Um, so I'm I'm kind of more confident on those than I am on the base metals. Um, but uh, there, there are obviously if you if you see a company which is drilling a good base metals project, it's going to get rated. Um, you're more bullish on the precious than you are on the base. Yeah, pretty much. I, I think I think it's just our turn, you know, Dominic. With where the the other the other guys have had their fun, and perhaps it's our turn finally. Um, I, I would just love to see gold shoes out before the metal wants to for once. <laughs> okay, and okay, so give us a, give us a gold explorer and give us a gold junior producer, uh, both of which are looking horrendously undervalued at the moment. Uh, 
Gold Explorer. Um, I've I've got a list of ones that I'm actually following. Uh, um, Sunridge Golds, uh, which is SGC on Vancouver again, has uh, just announced its maiden resource on its Eritrean uh, massive sulphide project, and that was phenomenal. Um, very very interested in that one. Uh, Nevson is an, is its neighbour, and that also just got its mining license. So the, these projects were very cheap to start with, and now they're looking ridiculously cheap. Um, so that is interesting. Northern Line Gold is another little drilling story I'm watching, which is a uh, massive sulphide, um, copper and zinc uh, driller in Portugal. That's NL in Vancouver. Uh, in Australia, there's something called Barrett Resources, which I think is BAR on the ASX. It just hit one of the highest grade intersections I've ever seen, um, something like 30,000 grams a tonne over a couple of, uh, over a half a metre or something. And in that end of town, Kulgadi, where it is, uh, you don't need very much to actually make a mine. That that's actually looks very interesting. Um, Hillian Gold is another little story I follow a lot, and that's um, that's got a, uh, a high grade project in New South Wales, which they're bringing to production. Um, it's It's actually complicated, Dominic, because a lot of the ones which have the big out stories uh, haven't actually performed that well. Um, you've got a bit of a dichotomy. You still have to have promoters on board. Um, I'll use the example of Detour Gold in Toronto, which is, has uh, did an IPO a few about two years ago, had two two dollar IPO. The stock is trading at something like ten or twelve bucks, and uh, the resources expanded significantly. But it's I think still a very low grade project and high risk project. But the Toronto Mafia really loves it, and they've just driven it up. Mm-hmm. And then I'll, I'll contrast that against something called um, the GBS Toronto gold. Mafia. I like that. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm I'm sorry for the brokers listening, but that, that's how it is. Um, the, um, the, uh, the I'll contrast that one against GBS Golds in Australia, which is sorry on the on the TSX, which has got a project in Australia that's got a um, something in order of three and a half, four and a, four million ounce reserve, and uh, it's producing in the order of 120,000 ounces, and that's valued in the order of $10 an ounce. It is a, a high-cost mine, um, but it's in a safe country, and I cannot understand why that stock is so cheap. And I just think there's a difference between promotion between the two companies. So uh, right now you've got a story. If, if, you, if your management team cannot promote, and they cannot access new capital. I think the story gets a serious underrating, and that is a function of how miserable this market's been. So, um, so my summary is that these these gold shares uh, should get a boost from the metal next year. Um, they're a very uh, unloved market uh, asset class right now, and I think most people would just don't even only even know what a junior stock is. So. Maybe we actually finally get the wave of, of speculative money that's been in the iron ore and base metal stocks uh, in the last couple of years, um, and that would be fun to see. And just my last my last comment is that I own these things personally, and I would love to see the move because we've been watching them and trading them cautiously, but I'd love to actually see the big move we've been waiting for. Good stuff. Well, I hope we see it too. Campbell, thank you very much. If, if there's a, a way that um, investors want to find out more about the Phoenix Fund, do you want to give out a website or something? Oh, it's uh, just uh, www.phoenixgoldfund.com, uh, and uh, if they want to email me, just uh, just send an email to the editor of this uh, column, and I'll and he'll forward it to me. Great, Campbell Smythe, thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. Commodity Watch Radio at Mindsight.com.
Jim Rogers is a man who needs little introduction. He's perhaps the most famous commodities trader of them all. Uh, formerly running the famous Quantum Fund with George Soros in the 1970s, he then took the next 20 years off and went back to work in the commodity sector in the late 1990s. He's another who saw this great bull market coming and positioned himself accordingly. Jim, welcome back to the show. Um, what are your big themes for 2008? Well, I'll tell you what I'm doing. Uh, what I'm doing is I'm, uh, with new money, I'm buying agricultural commodities. I am buying the renminbi, the Chinese currency. I'm buying the yen. I'm buying the Swiss franc, and I am selling short American investment bankers. Uh, so those are things that I'm doing with new money these days. Do you not think it's too late to go short American bankers? No, no, far. Well, investment bankers, certainly not. Well, I'm, I'm still short things like Citibank and, and Fannie Mae in America, and if they were to rally big, I'd short more. But the investment banks are really where the massive excesses have been in the world economy in the last uh, five years or so. I mean, there are not many excesses in silver mining in the past five years. There are not many excesses in sugar farming in the last 25 years, but there are major excesses on Wall Street, and sure, they're down in the last uh, six months or so, but after a mania like what we've had or a bubble like what we've had on Wall Street, it takes more than six months to clear that out. So no, if they rally, not if they rally, when they rally or as they rally, I sure want more. In your book, you wrote about gold at great length in your book, and I've spoken to you about gold before, and um, you've always said that you and your daughter, you own a lot of gold, but that... Um, perhaps gold bugs are a little extreme in their kind of doom and gloom outlook. But I've seen you interviewed earlier in this year, and, and you said get out of the dollar. Uh, are you have you turned more bullish on gold, or? Well, I am more bullish on agriculture than I am on gold. Yes, I do own gold. There's no question about it. But I think I'm going to make more in other commodities going forward than I am in gold. Now, if the world's going to end next week, probably we'll make a lot of money in gold. But I think we'll make more in wheat. We will in gold, even if the world's going to end next week. Mm -hmm. You don't think they've? I mean, I know you like to buy stuff cheap. You don't think uh, the the wheat and corn and so on have have made their big move already? Well, we're talking about if the world comes to an end. Uh, wheat and corn have certainly made big moves. I mean, the agricultural products. Well, I, what I'm really buying are, the, are my agricultural index because my lawyer won't let me buy individual commodities anymore. But uh, cotton, sugar, I mean, things like that are still very depressed on a historical basis, and they're positive. Fundamental changes taking place. Coffee. I mean, buy yourself a cup of coffee and some, put some sugar in it, and think of me tomorrow morning. <laughs> Good stuff. And how about base metals? Do you have an opinion there? Well, they skyrocketed, as you know. I own all my base metals. I'm not selling any, but uh, no. Would I buy more? Not at the moment. Again, I, I think there are better opportunities in in agriculture. You know, whenever you look at any market, or let's say, let's take a stock market, which people most people know more about. You look at, let's say last year the stock market went up uh, 18, 20%. If you look within the market, you'll find that at least 30% of the stocks went down during that bull market last year. So things don't always go up together. You always have some things going up and some things correcting and consolidating. So I wouldn't buy base metals. I'm not selling base metals because it's a major bull market, but I, I'd rather buy agriculture these days. That's fair enough. Do you want to give out the name of your uh, agricultural index so that listeners can find out more about it? Well, I, have a, I came up with an index fund back in 1998 when I thought the bear market and commodities was ending. It's called the Rogers International Commodities Index. 
there are various products associated with it. AB and AMRO has listed ETFs. Merrill Lynch has listed ETNs. UBS, just about every Iowa. Many people offer products based on it. Uh, in, in Europe, the ABN has listed, ABN AMRO has listed ETFs based on the index, including the sub-indexes, in other words, the Rogers Agricultural Index, the Rogers Metals Index, the Rogers Energy Index, or the Big Index. And likewise, in America, the symbols in America, anyway, which I, I know off the top of my head, are RJI, RJA, RJN, and RJZ, you know, for people who like to buy listed products. Mm -hmm. And I have bought more. I bought more of ABN Emerald's agricultural uh, product uh, recently, and more of Merrill Lynch's, the RJA, recently. Good stuff. Now, um, let me ask you a question. You ran the, the the quantum fund with George Soros way back in the day. Are you still in touch with him? Well, you said it very well. Way back in the day, that was twenty-eight years ago. You might as well ask me about my first wife. <laughs> <laughs> Are you still in touch with her? What? Are you still in touch with her, I said. Oh, no, no. People go their separate ways. You might as well ask where I went to university. I mean, these things are in the far distant past. You probably know that in your life, there are people you were once fast and very close to. You just sort of went your separate way. I'm, I can think of people that I was at university with that I saw 15 times a day that I haven't seen in 40 years. It just You wonder how it happens, but it does happen as you get older, at least for most people. No, I, I, I know exactly what you mean, and it's happened to me. But it was a kind of loaded question, because I was going to ask you, Jim, next about the, uh, the pound, and I was going to ask you if perhaps you knew if Soros was going to short the pound again, because the pound's starting to look... Um, it's not looking great, let's put it that way. Well, I, I have no idea. You have to ask everybody else what they do. I, I, even if I knew, I couldn't speak for somebody else. No, of course. Uh, as I said, I haven't seen, it's been 28 years, so who, who knows? Uh, I have been selling the pound myself, and uh, not short, but I've been selling the pound in the past uh, several weeks because, in my view, the pound is a terribly, I mean, it's not as bad as the U.S. dollar. Uh, not many things are as bad as the U.S. dollar, but uh, I... I've been selling the pound. It's got many flaws ahead of it. And, the, and one of the main ones, of course, is, and one of the reasons I'm, I'm long uh, commodities is because, you know, the U.K. is going to be a net import of oil before too much longer. I think it you've already is, isn't it? For, you've been exporting oil for 27 years. Well, that's about to change. Mm -hmm. Are you still bullish on oil and natural gas and energy? Well, I own them. Uh, I'm not buying oil at the moment. I guess of those two, I'd rather buy natural gas than oil, just because oil is so 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 much higher on a historic basis than than the natural gas. But uh, I, I own them. I'm not selling them. Good stuff. Well, um, Jim. Listen, this is a, a short interview and we're putting a compilation together of lots of different people. It's a real pleasure to have you on once again. Thank you so much for your time and. Uh, Good luck with those soft and agricultural commodities. Very good. Call me any time. Let's talk again. Are you having turkey for Christmas? And has the cost of turkey gone up because of the cost of grain? I think we're actually having ham uh, this year. Um, uh, since, since they don't ask me, they just tell me. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I'll, I'll find out and let you know. All right. Okay. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Jim. And do come on the show again next year and do, do a longer interview with us. I would be delighted. Thank you. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby.
Michael Hampton, a.k.a. Dr. Bub, formerly an oil derivatives trader for Chase Manhattan. For many years now, a private investor is on the phone to me from Hong Kong. Hello, Mike. Hello, Dominic. How are you doing? I'm very well. So look into your crystal ball that's full of cycles and moving averages and various other technical indicators and tell us what's going to happen in 2008. All right. Well, um, I really see two big themes, and I'd like to mention what those are and then take you through uh, seven sort of smaller themes, which I think um, will get us closer to the detail. Uh, the two big themes I see for 2008 are stagflation, I think we've been talking about stagflation for a long time, but we're going to really see it arrive during 2008. Um, the other big theme, and I think it's going to be an ongoing one as we go forward and, you know, over the next decade or so, is a rather steady decline in America's wealth. I think that the wealth of the average American, when measured in ounces of gold, for example, is going to be in a fairly steady decline over the next decade. And uh, stagflation, the arrival of stagflation, I think will, in a way, help the arrival of that uh, that decline. Um, okay, well, I'd like to talk about the seven sort of sub-themes. And they kind of run one from another. I mean, one sort of leads into another. Uh, I think the most important uh, trend in the U.S. right now is the falling house prices. And, you know, as we talked about before, house, house uh, price inflation acts as a kind of accelerator in the economy. When house prices are going up, it helps in various ways. You obviously get more home building. Uh, you get more credit. Uh, and, of course, as we've seen over the last decade or so, you get a lot more uh, mortgage equity release, which uh, helps the consumer purchase uh, various things, keeping the economy growing. So in a, in a rising house price environment, you know, it acts as an accelerator on the economy. Uh, when house prices turn down, it acts as a decelerator. And, uh, you know, typically I think you'll see house prices turn up or turn down before the growth in the economy really uh, moves in the same direction or whether it, when it, when it uh, follows in the same direction as house prices. So house prices started to decline, you know, well over a year ago in the U.S. They're, they're starting to decline six months ago or so or, quarter or so ago in the UK. And uh, I think, you know, in both these economies, we're going to see some deceleration in the economy over the course of 2008. So falling home prices will, uh, will hurt the economy. I think we'll see that uh, it will be acknowledged that the U.S. is in recession bef before the end of Q1. I think we're actually in a recession already. And it takes some time before the powers that be uh, and the statistics uh, come out and we can acknowledge this. But uh, I think there'll be general acknowledgement of a U.S. recession by the end of Q1. Um, now, as, uh, as recession hits and uh, people find they can't mew and borrow so easily against their homes, we're going to see the U.S. consumer downsizing. Um, spending less money, uh, maybe selling larger homes to buy smaller ones. Um, there'll be a number of impacts like that. We're already beginning to see that in the U U.S. We'll see that uh, following in the U.K., and we'll see this happening in the U.K. before the end of 2008. Um, now, I don't see the central banks standing back and allowing this to happen without pumping quite a lot of money. 
So as the stagnation sets in and the economy slows down, I think you'll see the Fed and the other central banks uh, continuing to pump money into the system uh, to try and solve some of the problems of, uh, you know, bank uh, credit. Um, and uh, the, the immediate impact of that might be some currencies falling in value. I think the dollar rally uh, that we've seen over the last few weeks is almost over. It may have ended last week. And I think, you know, in Q1, we'll probably see a weaker dollar again. Uh, the other interesting development that I think we'll see in 2008 is we'll see sterling following the dollar down. So just continuing with this thing. So the fourth uh, sub-theme I have is falling currencies and um, falling interest rates. Now, the problem is, is the banks go on pumping all this money and, quote, unquote, adding liquidity to the system. I think the problem is that the money is not going to go where they want it to go. And, indeed, the problems are not easily fixed. Um, the real problem, and, you know, it's funny to me that the mainstream press doesn't seem to want to talk about this, but they seem to, if you listen to Bloomberg, as I do, uh, you know, for quite an interesting number of hours per day, uh, they, they keep talking about, well, when is the uh, subprime crisis going to be cured? And, you know, it seems to me that, you know, the cure for the crisis is really has nothing to do with the financial system, but it has to do with getting prices low enough, house prices low enough, that people can actually afford to buy them again. And uh, that means that we need a pretty serious drop in prices, both in the U.S. and the U.K., and then people will be able to afford to, you know, more easily to, to buy homes again. Um, and, and homes will basically move from, uh, from uh, speculators into buy-to-let speculators and into first-time buyers. Um, and uh, they, they can't do that at current prices. So we need a drop in, in house prices for that to occur. And uh, we need to get rid of quite a lot of excess supply, you know, property being held in the wrong hands. And this isn't something that's cured in a matter of weeks or months. It takes years to cure this problem. And I think that's rather obvious, and yet the mainstream press seems unwilling to talk about it. So, um, you know, we need... to buy to less. <laughs> that, may, that may have something to do with it. They're kind of you know, having various vested interests, which prevents them from reporting uh, these things in any sort of detail. Um, the next thing so, is gold rising. Yes. Well, I just wanted to finish on oh, this sorry. point of uh, of uh, the money going in the wrong place. So mm -hmm. the point is, as the Fed pumps money, what they're hoping to happen is they're hoping the mortgage system to go back to, uh, you know, root health. But, you know, it can't really go back to root health without there being quite a few write-offs along the way. So uh, as the Fed pumps money, the liquidity is not going to go into the bank, fixing the banking system. It's going to go into other places. It's going to go into commodities. It's going to go into gold. It's going to go into food prices. It's going to go to some extent into energy prices. So, um, you know, it's not going to go where uh, where the Fed wants it to go. And that's why I say I think number five, gold is going to rise. Um, that, uh, you know, we'll probably see a fairly dramatic increase in gold prices as people who actually have liquidity, um, like uh, foreign foreign sovereign funds and wealthy investors uh, put their money into places where they, they actually feel safe. And that means 
probably quite a lot of money will go into gold. I'm quite bullish in gold. I think gold in, in dollars and gold in euros and certainly gold in sterling uh, will see a very nice move up. Uh, I think that move has started already. I think it probably started this past week. And, you know, I think we could see a pretty dramatic 10 or 15 or even 20% rise in gold between now and the end of the first quarter. Um, it could hit a 1,000. Um, if it does, I think we'll see a pullback to uh, something in the 800s. Um, it won't go straight up. But I think we're probably on the uh, verge of seeing a move like that towards a 1,000, maybe even above a 1,000 in the next few weeks here, a few months, a few weeks. So six and seven, um, number six, um, I think energy and commodities are going to see a lot of cross currents this year. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think, you know, energy prices are, you know, on their way back up to test 100, probably go a little bit above that uh, over the next uh, little while here, over the next few weeks. But I think it's probably fairly likely we'll see a pullback in energy prices, uh, well, maybe late Q1. And, you know, that would probably come as uh, the world acknowledges the U.S. is in recession and uh, people start to wonder how much demand in the U.S. is going to be, energy demand is going to be affected by a recession. So, uh, and also, as you probably know, there's a seasonal tendency for energy prices to start dropping uh, sometime in late January or February. And um, there's a kind of typical shoulder month sell-off that you see, and I'm sure we can talk about it in future podcasts. But I wouldn't be surprised to see 100 110 even $120 in oil and it dropping back to below where it is now. So, um, you know, that might present a good buying opportunity, something like March uh, 2008. Um, mm -hmm. But my, mind you, this is way too precise to... to, to uh, to be written in, in stone. I think we've got to be flexible. That, might, that, yeah. that delay may sooner or later. But let's look for a drop when the recession's acknowledged. And uh, You reserve the right to change your mind. Events should uh, events unfold differently. Uh, indeed, indeed, indeed. And anyway, so that's drop number one in energy, and I think we might see another drop in energy when people see that uh, demand is actually slowing down in, in China. And... Uh, I don't expect a huge slowdown in Chinese economy in the first half of the year. Um, a lot of people over here talk constantly about the Olympics and, uh, and, you know, may or may not be correct, but most people in Hong Kong will tell you that the Chinese economy will continue to be robust right up until the Olympics. And uh, the Chinese will be reluctant to really turn the screws and tighten their own economic, their own financial uh, system very much until after the Olympics. And then we could see a bit of a, you know, slowdown, uh, intentional slowdown in China, you know, in the second half. Mm -hmm. So maybe sometime in the second half, uh, summer to second half, we see another drop in oil um, as, as that Chinese demand begins to fall a bit and people uh, are unsure about how much impact that's going to have. But anyway, in between there may be a nice rally. Mm -hmm. um, so the level we're dropping from when we see that Chinese drop, you know, it could be back to 100 or it could be some other level, lower or higher than that. Um, so let's wait and see. Um, finally, stocks. Um, my best guess on stocks is that we're going to have a sell-off. Um, it's maybe started already, but we're going to have a 10 or 20% drop in the stock market. Um, and... Uh, 
As we see that, that will probably trigger some additional drops in interest rates in the U.S. Um, and uh, at some point, um, maybe before um, before Q2 is over, mm-hmm. we'll see some type of an interesting bottom in the market and then a rally. And uh, if, if we get a sharp enough drop, we're going to get a very sharp rally coming out of that. Um, but, you know, one of the things I'd like to sort of mention here, I mean, there's a lot of debates on various chat boards, including GEI, about, you know, are we looking at inflation or are we going to see hyperinflation? Are we going to see stagflation? Are we going to see deflation? What I'd like to say is if you want to cut through all that, maybe the simplest way to do to look at it is to say, I think we're pretty certainly going to have deflation, provided you measure things in terms of gold. But if you want to measure things in terms of dollars, then it gets a lot more complicated. And that's when you have to start talking about things like stagflation, hyperinflation, and so forth, because really it gets complicated because if the dollar is losing its value very quickly, then some things are going to go up when measured in terms of nominal dollar prices, uh, while they're actually dropping when measured in terms of gold ounces. So, I mean, to me, the scenario that we would probably see is stagflation, meaning stagnation with the Fed fighting it by pumping money in, and then certain things like gold and certain inflation hedges, food prices, maybe energy prices going up in terms of nominal dollars, while other things like house prices and so forth go down. Mm-hmm. Now, if the Fed the Fed finds that intolerable uh, to have falling house prices, I mean, if the Fed and the U.S. politicians and uh, monetary authorities find it, you know, impossible to sit by and let a 20% drop in house prices or 30% drop in house prices occur, and they really pump dollars like mad, then we may, in those circumstances, we may get hyperinflation. And what that means is that, uh, you know, U.S. house prices maybe continue to fall in terms of gold ounces, but the dollar loses value so fast that nominal house prices go up when measured in dollars. Mm-hmm. But uh, this whole process of inflation versus deflation and stagflation and so forth, this drama is going to play out over several years. And sitting here in 2007, it's very hard to say. I mean, if we don't have hyperinflation in 2008, we may well still get it sometime later, and uh, we may get some pretty big deflation uh you know, coming after hyperinflation. Scary times we're moving into. Mike, as we close, do you want to give out uh, your website address? Okay, globaledgeinvestors.com. Mike Hampton, thanks very much. Nice to talk to you, Dominic. Commodity Watch Radio at mindsight.com. Dr. Mark Farber is the editor of the Gloom Boom Doom Report, widely regarded as one of the best newsletters out there. He's talking to me now from Switzerland, where he's just got back from skiing. Hiya, Mark. Welcome back to the show. What's in store for us in 2008? Well, thank you very much for having me on your show, Dominic. And uh, what is on for 2008 is difficult to tell because we have essentially a credit contraction induced by the private sector 
because of uh, huge write-offs in the banking sector and the, among other financial institutions like insurance companies, reinsurance companies, subprime lenders. And so they're shrinking the balance sheet. And at the same time, we have the ECB and the Fed essentially pumping money into the system and trying to revitalize credit growth. So it's like a war between the central banks and the governments that want to keep the economic expansion going and the private sector that through credit contraction essentially signals a recession. Now, in the U.S., I believe we are already in stagflation. In other words, no economic growth in real terms and that the economic statistics that are published by the government and the various agencies they make things look better than they are. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's verging on the fraudulent. Yes. Uh, I mean, it, basically, the CPI in America, which is the Consumer Price Index, is a total fraud. I was looking the other day. Uh, for 95% of American families, food as a percent of spending of household income is more than 20% and food prices are rising at the present time at over 10% per annum. But the Bureau of Labor Statistics that compiles the CPI has the food component at 6%. So we can see they underweight items like health care, food, energy, in order to make the CPI look better than it is. And as a result of that, real GDP looks better statistically measured but in reality, it is a disaster. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that stocks will collapse because if you print money, stocks can go up. That's why I'm suggesting that it's difficult to give you a precise answer. I believe we'll see more of the same, that gold will outperform financial assets. I mean, this is the kind of the great debate that's going on. It's uh, there's in some people they say we're heading into a period of inflation or hyperinflation, and others say deflation. And I listen to the arguments of both, and both arguments are, are utterly convincing. And and what you've described there is a battle between inflation and deflation, effectively. Yes, exactly. And we have to be very careful. Some sectors of the economy can have deflation, like housing in the United States. And I think that also in the UK, housing deflation has begun. And then other sectors of the economy, like energy or food, can go up. And so we have to be very careful about making a general judgment. But my view would be that the US central bank, the Federal Reserve, has no other option but to print money like water. Otherwise, the whole American house of cards built on debt and incompetence militarily collapses. Mm. You've heard the um, the argument about about money supply. You can you can inject money into the system, but you can't control where it goes. Correct. Do you have an inkling of where this next injection of money will end up? If previously it's ended up in stocks and then in real estate. Well, I mean, I think that uh, obviously you can print as much money as you like. Now, nowadays, it's not happening through a money printing machine, but it happens electronically in the sense that the Federal Reserve, for its own account, can buy treasury bills, treasury bonds, and now they can also buy basically 
mortgage-backed securities, CDOs, and subprime loans. So to some extent, they can monetize the system. Now, in my opinion, it's a bad measure, but that's what they can do. Or the Treasury can cut taxation for certain groups of people uh, that can be helped through lower taxation. But again, that's inflationary. And so I believe that this monetary injection, which can be limitless, uh, will favor assets where you cannot increase the supply meaningfully, which are essentially precious metals and other commodities. Mm. I mean, this this scenario of, of the, the the battle between deflation and in inflation. If if you're in debt with assets that are deflating, while there's rampant inflation going on elsewhere, I mean, that's an awful situation to be in. Of course, yes. Uh, the, the trick in these situations is always to get out at the right time of the bubble sector, and we had a bubble in tech stocks and in uh, telecommunication in the late 1990s, and it came to an end when the Nasdaq collapsed, and despite of artificially low interest rates, and don't forget, the Fed cut the Fed fund rate from 6.5% to 1% and kept the 1% until June 2004, when the economic recovery in America began in November uh, 2001, so essentially three years into an economic recovery, interest rates were still at 1%, which is ridiculous, and a sign of hyperinflating uh, credit growth and money supply, and that didn't help the NASDAQ. And they can again cut interest rates to, say, 1% or 2%. It may not help homeowners a lot in the United States because the supply is very large, mm. but it will help gold owners. That, I assure you, if the market begins to perceive the Fed as a money-printing institution, which I believe they are, then the gold price and the silver price will, of course, increase significantly. And if you were putting new money to work now, gold and silver, anywhere else? Well, I believe that this war between the central banks, the Fed in the U.S. and the ECB in Europe, uh, on one hand, and on the other hand, the private sector that is essentially out of necessity contracting credit, that this war will be a long, drawn-out war. And there will be battles that are won by the Fed and the battles that are won by the private sector. And right now, as I mentioned, the U.S. is probably in stagflation. The trade and current accounts uh, deficit of the U.S., the U.S. has had this huge increase in the trade and current account deficit. This is now no longer happening. The trade and current account deficit of the U.S. is contracting, and that also contracts international liquidity, which is in principle favorable for the U.S. dollar. And that may mean that the U.S. dollar here strengthens against the British pound, against the euro, and possibly for a while also against gold. So right now, I'm more in favor to be cash U.S. dollar, and then in a month or two months' time, we'll have to review the situation. But I'm not selling my gold because I'm of the view that paper money will become practically worthless, that it will lose its purchasing power. 
especially so in the United States. Do you think uh, anyone from the Federal Reserve Bank subscribes to your newsletter? No, I don't think so, but I'd like to mention that Swiss Re just had a over a billion dollar loss in a unit that was run by a former Federal Reserve Board member, <laughs> by Mr. Robert Corrigan of New York. So I wouldn't invest with the Federal Reserve members. <laughs> and also Robert Rubin, who was a secretary of the U.S. Treasury, he's on the board of Citigroup. I, I forgot whether he's the chairman or just on the board. When he was confronted with the so-called liquidity put options, he didn't even know what liquidity puts are. <laughs> and uh, the whole group of people is a group of totally ignorant people. That's very funny. Um, uh, one last question for you, Mark, if I may. When the kind of remit of the European Central Bank was set out, uh, one of the primary duties was to maintain, keep inflation down. And uh, Trichet, with all this uh, injections of liquidity, seems to be betraying that somewhat. Would you agree? Well, yes, of course. But the problem is that the politicians and uh, the business people go to the ECB and say, are you crazy? The euro is much too strong. So if the U.S. pursues an ultra-expansionary monetary policy that lowers the value of the U.S. dollar, in other words, the dollar goes down, then the euro goes up and it puts pressure on the ECB to also cut rates. I don't think they should cut rates. But then you have a very strong euro. And what this means essentially is that the U.S., is pursuing protectionist economic policies and uh, damage your neighbor policies by essentially exporting the recession to other people. Mm -hmm. And so I understand the ECB that is under pressure. But as I said, I have no confidence whatsoever in the clowns that are running central banks, whether it's the Federal Reserve or the, the ECB. I believe every responsible citizen has to be his own central bank and maintain his own gold reserve. Very good. Um, Mark, do you want to give out your website address? It's www.gloomboomdoom.com. Good stuff. Mark Farber, it's an excellent newsletter and uh, that's a great interview. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Very kind of you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, Dominic. Bye. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby. James Turk is the founder and chairman of Gold Money and the author of The Coming Collapse in the Dollar and How to Profit from It. He's very much an advocate of sound money, and he's talking to me now from the States. Hiya, James. Welcome to the show. What's going to happen in 2008? Hi, Dominic. Uh, I think 2008 is going to see a continuation of the bull market in the precious metals. But my expectation is that silver is going to outperform. I think 2008 is going to be the year of silver. Silver's been lagging quite dramatically. Yeah, it has been. Um, you know, 
in April of uh, 2006, um, that was the basically the high of, of that. That's when the uh, uh, silver ETF came out. Yeah. In May of 2006, we reached a, a temporary high, and although we breached that high just recently, um, we're, we're again back below it. So the you know, silver's been basically going sideways for more than a year and a half. Gold, on the other hand, is well above its May 2006 high. Yeah, well, I mean, do you think it's because people view silver as a as a base metal, or is it because of this short position in silver on the comics? Or I mean, w- why is it? Yeah, I think it's the short position on uh, the, the short position on the comics and the shorts in general. I think they're keeping the the uh, silver market from rising. And I have questions um, about the uh, integrity of the silver ETF and whether there's really silver backing it or whether the silver is actually out on loan. I've raised a number of questions about that after going through the disclosure documents, uh, the prospectus custodial agreement. And uh, there's enough there are enough loopholes in that documentation to suggest that there is not all the silver it supposedly has. <laughs> I mean, effectively, if you're buying something that you think is silver and isn't, you're not you're not actually pushing the price of the underlying commodity higher, even though you think you are. Yeah, exactly. And we don't know who the concentrated shorts are on the COMEX, but there's a good bet that you know um, it could very well be the same people who are controlling the custodial the custodial aspects of the silver uh, supposedly backing the ETF. So, And the other thing is just logic. How can there supposedly be that much demand for silver and the price is still lower than it was in May of 2006? It just doesn't make sense. Markets don't work that way. I was talking to a, a jeweler just before Christmas and um, he was uh, – Complaining, I asked him about the rising price in gold and silver and how it was affecting him. And uh, one thing he was resigned to was the fact that the higher prices are here to stay. But the other thing that he observed was the, the rise in the silver price in 2006 hit him harder than the rise in the gold price has. Mm, that's interesting analysis. But, you know, we haven't seen anything yet in terms of where prices are going. Uh, you know, this is still early days as far as this bull market's concerned, and uh, we're going to be going much higher in both gold and silver. Um, I, Mark Farber described uh, central bankers as a bunch of clowns. <laughs> Would you agree with that? I mean, do you think any of them have read your book, for example? Well, you know, I wrote an article, uh, actually a little monograph that was published um, a couple of years ago by the Committee on Monetary Research and Education. And uh, in it, I describe the, the, the true barbarous relic. It's not gold. The true barbarous relic is central banking. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think that's basically true because they intervene in the free market process. You know, in today's world, there's no uh, place for people operating in secret behind closed doors, intervening in, in markets the way they do. Mark was describing a, these two, um, this war that was going on between uh, forces of deflation on one side and forces of inflation um, represented by the, the central banks on the other. Um, you've always described the way this is going to unfold as deflation when valued in gold. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, in order to determine whether you know, prices are going to deflate or prices are going to inflate, you have to first define the currency by which you're going to measure those prices. If you look at prices in terms of national currencies, they're inflating now and they're going to continue to inflate. However, if you look at prices in terms of gold, prices are deflating in terms of gold. Uh, What that basically means is the gold price is rising in national currency terms. And I think these trends, which are well established now for several years, are going to continue. 
We're going to see massive deflation of gold price, uh, prices when measured in terms of gold, massive inflation when prices of goods and services are measured in terms of dollars. Do you want to um, guess where the gold and silver price will be, will, 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 will touch at some point next year? Yeah, in fact, I just did something on this recently for my uh, newsletter. And my expectation for 2008 is that we're going to see a high somewhere around 1500 and we're going to end the year around 12 to 1300 on gold. I also expect the ratio to fall uh, to at least a 40. If we have 1200 on gold and a 40 to 1 uh, gold to silver ratio, that puts silver at $30. Wow, that would be very nice. I th thought I was being stupidly bullish with my predictions, but uh, you're the, the biggest gold and silver bull of them all. That's why I'm calling silver uh, 2008 the year of silver. I think we're going to finally see silver catching up. And the, the, um, the, cap that we, the capping of its price that we've seen over the past year and a half, I think it's going to end. Everything is looking extremely bullish for silver, so I'm quite excited about it, uh, excited about it for 2008. All right. Well, great. James Turk, uh, do you want to give out your website? Yes, it's uh, goldmoney.com. I'm the founder and chairman of, of Gold Money, and I'd be happy to you know, answer any emails that your subscribers might have. Uh, it's uh, jamesturk at goldmoney.com. Great. James, thank you very much. Uh, I hope your predictions come true in 2008 and come and talk to us again. Thanks, Dominic. Commodity Watch Radio at mindsight.com. George Blake, otherwise known as Zapata George, is the editor of ZapataGeorge.com. He's a self-proclaimed financial genius, one of the most popular guests on our show last year. And he's talking to me now from his home in southern Texas. Hello, George. Good morning to you, sir. Great stuff. And uh, I've just been talking to Mark Farber, who'd come off the ski slopes. James Turk is about to go sleighing, and you're in, in boiling hot weather. Is that right? Well... It's a little cool here today, but we we normally average in the high 70s this time of the year. Oh, lovely. Now, um, what's going to happen in 2008, George? Well, my long-awaited bifurcation will take place. It actually took place this past year. Uh, back in 05, oil, gold, the dollar, and the U.S. markets all moved higher for the entire year. This is a condition which logically cannot exist. Uh, dollar and gold should move in opposite directions. The market and oil under most conditions should move in opposite directions for logical economic reasons. Now, we are returning to the logical scenario. And the recent uh, carry trade created a situation that I called uh, Liquidity breeds stupidity, and of course that's what brought about the conditions of 05. I suspect there will be a little bit more logic and reason brought back to markets next year. And do you want to guess where we're, where we're going to go with gold and silver? Uh, short term, uh, gold will exceed its old late 70s, early 80s high. 
it will meet uh, a barrier in the 1,000 range, which is purely psychological. Now, I think that silver is one of the two most undervalued major commodities working. Uh, it still tends to trail gold. But sometime during this cycle, I don't know when, I have made a prediction that uh, December the 24th, 2039, as the traders lead the NYMEX, silver will be $232 an ounce. But that's a ways out there. <laughs> and uh, your other great undervalued commodity is, of course... Natural gas. The most undervalued commodity. And that's going a lot higher in 2008? Uh, it could do it. Uh, well, let's see. We only have a few days left here. But yes, we'll, we'll use 2008. <laughs> now, I'm looking for at least $16. In 2008? Yes, sir. Good stuff. And what's going to cause that? The condition of natural gas has gone unrecognized. There is no other major commodity in the world that has suddenly seen two new uses. Our friend Corn which fed hogs and folks, same thing, uh, was suddenly discovered as a source of ethanol. Well, guess what? It takes 44 BTUs of natural gas to make 100 BTUs of ethanol. Now then, our friends up in Canada are digging up oil out of sand. Guess what? It takes two other things, fresh water and a heat source. Well, in northern Alberta, there's only one heat source. It's called natural gas. So we have two brand-new major usages of this commodity, and nobody has paid any attention. Now, I wrote a paper two and a half years ago that showed that production had finally been overtaken by consumption. Only extremely mild winters and storage facilities have been able to hold this price down. It's ready to explode. Why, why hasn't it exploded before? Uh, I suspect we have to go back to that statement that I made about liquidity. It bred enough stupidity that the natural gas has gone unrecognized. Uh, it, uh, stupidity is rampant. Well, look, look at this. Mickey Mouse deal with the subprime things. Mm -hmm. Who created that? Bankers created it. And as Mr. Buffett said the other day, you know, uh, bankers were able to lose enough money without trying out this new idea. <laughs> so if you're putting new money to work, uh, silver, natural gas, anywhere else? Uh, well, I, you know, anything, uh, if you're investor you want to diversify your dollar base and so I urge my clientele to buy Canadian stocks the trusts are on sale because again an act of stupidity was created a year ago Halloween uh, when the finance minister of Canada massacred all the trust stocks now there will probably be an election in Canada and the opposing party will get in, and they have already said they're going to reverse that decision. So uh, diversify your dollar, get you something that's got some income, and stick to the natural resources because the, uh, anything that produces a BTU will be in demand for the next 20 years. Um, 
I'm very bearish on the pound. Uh, we're kind of like uh, America's more stupid little brother or little sister, if you like. Do you have a view on sterling? You Yes, because if you'll remember, maybe you're not old enough, but about 1980, a pound and a dollar were even money. Yep. One, one to one. But about that time, the North Sea came on. When it did... Uh, you know, uh, Britain could have joined OPEC. Now, they chose not to. I don't know why. But uh, they became an oil-exporting country. Boom, strength in the pound. Well, guess what? In the last 12 months, you have become a net importer of petroleum again. Uh-oh, same mistake as your big brother. Well, guess what? Same result to your currency, my friend. <laughs> Well, I hope Gordon Brown listens to this. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. More than anything else, I like to have fun, and I do it with my investments. Uh, I try to get people to sleep at night and enjoy the daytime. All right. Well, good stuff. George, do you want to give out your website address? ZapataGeorge.com. You have to click on the financial flicks section. Now, I have just revolutionized the letter writing industry, I now present an all video format, just like YouTube. Okay. I talk, you look me in the face and I look you in the eye. Are you sure that's wise? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Thanks very much, George, and come on ne the show next year and talk to us again. We'll do it. All right. Good stuff. Happy 2008. Thank you, sir. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby. Dave Skarika is editor of the newsletter Addicted to Profits, which you can find at addictedtoprofits.net. He's focused on resource stocks and, with a healthy mixture of technical and fundamental analysis, called the bottom in the markets rather excellently on this show back in August. Welcome back to the show, Dave. And using your healthy mix of technical and fundamental analysis, tell us what's in store for 2008. Well, I guess I'll get into, to start, uh, the market I'm most sure of, and that would be actually the gold and resource market. Um, we have been looking for a while in my uh, newsletter for a, a bounce in the U.S. dollar mm -hmm. and a correction in gold. And we, we've seen that. The U.S. dollar index, which is uh, the U.S. dollar against a basket of currencies such as the euro, Canadian dollar, yen, etc., uh, was down to 75, which was basically an all-time low. The, uh, the previous all-time low was the high 70s, which was reached in 1993 and 1995, uh, before the rally of the late 90s. So we, we basically hit it all uh, time low. Technically, it was very oversold, so I figured we were due for some kind of bounce. And in a technical term, you have something called resistance. And resistance is an area uh, that the, usually the market has trouble going through to the upside. Well, my opinion is resistance on the, this U.S. dollar is now this late 70s, 80 area, that was the long-term support. So now we should stay below that area, just like previously we had stayed, uh, stayed above that area. So I think right now the U.S. dollar got back to about 78 and has come off in the last couple of days, I think back into the 77 area. And I'm expecting us to hit new lows in the U.S. dollar, new highs in gold and silver. And the HUI index, which is the AMAX Gold Bugs Index, uh, index of gold stocks, um, 
that are unhedged, uh, companies like Eldorado, BIMA, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, or, you know, BIMA was in it. But anyhow, um, uh, and Nico Eagle, uh, like two details of all the companies in it, that had broken out. Uh, the old high was 400, reached in May of 2006. And I did a really interesting uh, study which showed that when you broke the old high, you used to, usually went uh, 150% to 200% above the previous moves low. Like, for example, let me give you an example of this. In 2002, the HUI peaked at 150. It then corrected to 90. On the next move, it went to 250, which is about 180% move. Mm-hmm. Then after that, it corrected back to about 160 and then on the next move, it went to 400, which is 150%. So the low for this move was 270 on the HUI, which in my opinion means that we should go to six to 700. And also, also as you know, Dominic, I don't know if any of your other guests have talked about this, there's a seasonality usually to gold. That gold tends to do start well starting in the fall and then will peak often in the spring. And we saw that this year in the gold stocks. Uh, we saw that in 2006 in the gold stocks. And uh, we saw that in other... Uh, uh, peaks in the gold stock this is 2002 and 2001 but anyhow that my opinion should mean that this move we're going to see in gold uh before the next day short-term dollar bottom should happen from now to the spring send the hui up into the six to seven hundred range which probably should send gold up into about the thousand dollar range and then we'll have another consolidation before the next move higher so uh, i've noticed i've noticed exactly the same pattern dave and by that reasoning i i, I have eleven eleven hundred dollar gold as a target for um for the spring well that's interesting because another thing too is you're getting more gold stocks are more leveraged in the metal let me give you an example let's say you have a company that produces gold at 350 dollars an ounce all right when gold was 351, they were making a dollar an ounce. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now gold is say 700. Now, okay, they probably have increased costs. Uh, inflationary effects are going to hit them. Higher oil costs. Say their cost of production goes now to 450. But still, they're making you know uh, 700, 250 an ounce, opposed to one dollar an ounce at 350. Right. Mm-hmm. So their profit's gone up 250 times. Now that doesn't mean the stock's necessarily going to go up 250 times, but they're more leveraged. Like, like one indicator I also look at is the HUI divided by the price of gold. And when this whole thing bottomed in 2001, gold was 250, the HUI was 38. So roughly the HUI was trading at 16, 17% the price of gold. Well, now the HUI is trading you know, at roughly 400 as we're talking and gold is roughly 800. So it's trading about 50% of the price of gold. Uh, I think it's actually 48% is the exact number right now. So my opinion is, again, talking the six to seven HUI, because gold stocks have more leverage and they're more profitable as gold goes up, when gold does hit, say, 1100 as you said, um, that basically, yeah, the HUI should get up to about 60 to 70% of the price of gold, which puts it at roughly six to 700 mm-hmm. And so th- that's where I'm kind of um, you know, getting all these numbers from. I'm not just like kind of pulling them out of a hat sort of thing. So, uh, and I agree with you. And actually, another interesting, again, talking about resistance and support, 850 or 800 850 which is the 1990 high which is the kind of resistance where gold's having problems with right now should then become the new support level if we hit 1100 as as you think we might uh, and i think we might uh, next spring um let me ask you a question while we're talking about the relationship between the gold stocks and the metal itself why do you think the canadian juniors have so badly lagged these last few months um, I think that, you know what, this is an frustrating aspect. Because I know I've had stocks, especially during Canadian tax law season, 
which I, I think uh, is, is now just ending, uh, do very poorly. I've had stocks, a couple companies, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, that, that have broken down into a couple multi-year lows, like lower than, you know, when gold was 400, 300, or when uh, nickel and, you know, or nickel and copper companies that have broken down, you know, nickel and copper prices, even though coming off their highs are still much higher than they were three, four, five years ago. Um, I think the the lack of a major find is one uh, aspect to it. Like my friend has um, actually a friend of mine, Mike Williams. He runs a company called Full Metal Minerals. In his office, he's got you know a, a framed picture of uh, the Briex scam when it came out. But what was interesting mm-hmm. was not so much the scam, but when you look in the top right-hand corner of the National Post, that gold's $360 an sh- ounce, right? So yeah. we had this huge boom in juniors. In my opinion, that's when I kind of just got started in this industry was in 96, 97. Uh, that boom was better than this boom in terms of uh, the appreciation and the price of juniors mining stocks. And, you know, resource prices were a lot lower. But why did we have that boom? You had Diamet, you had Diamond Fields, you had, you know, Briex, which, you know, everyone thought was, was a fine for a while. You had these big, huge fines, which then in turn created interest in the mainstream uh, public to get into juniors because, you know, greed is a powerful emotion and people thought that they could get the next, you know, big score. And I think a major problem, even though we've had some successful junior stories, is that we're not seeing, you know, these huge fines. And then companies have to go back to the market to finance, which dilutes and creates more shares outstanding and then in turn you know people have to kind of sell and then and then another thing i think no one really takes into account is the equity market being relatively weak since the summer mm-hmm. is i think that the equity market uh whether you're perma bull or perma bear or the whatnot is it breeds liquidity into all markets so i've made the i've actually i've, I've actually just putting out my december issue right now and one thing I'm talking about in it is that I really don't think the juniors can have a bull market unless the equity market at the very least stabilizes or hopefully, you know, is in a bottoming phase and, can, you know, the Dow can go to 15, you know, thousand or something around there next year. So I think, like, if we can get a stabilization in the equity market, which may, I'm still leaning towards thinking that's happening, that's also going to help uh, juniors. Because remember, in the end, we're talking about equities. Junior mining stocks may be junior gold stocks, but they're also equities. So I think you need liquidity in the equity market. And so what's going to happen in the equity markets? Well, I'm still bullish. A lot of the indicators I watch are still calling for a bottom. Now, they haven't hit extremes on kind of the retests and the lows we saw in the last month. Uh, the key area I'm looking at is the 1370 to 1400 area in the S&P 500, which right now is well above that. It's 1480. If uh, that goes, then we've actually got a big topping formation and we'll probably enter a bear market. But I, I think as of now, we're going to hold, uh, we're kind of in a staying pattern right now. But I, I think by next year, because of the liquidity that the Fed's injecting, and uh, actually I think we're nearing the end of this phase of the housing bust, which I'll get into in a second, I think the equity market is um, going to go forward. Now, the reason I'm talking about the housing stuff and the financials is really key. I did a study. Um, we were calling the housing stocks a bubble for a while. Now, I wasn't smart enough to go in and short them because, you know, they kept going up and up, and it was almost, it was almost impossible to call that top. But in the summer of 2005, August of 2005, the Dow Jones U.S. Home Building Index, which is the index I watch, uh, peaked at a level of 1,100. 
Now, this index was created in the year 2000, level of 100, which tells you what a huge run the home building stocks had. But um, uh, one study I did years ago showed that when a bubble blows up, uh, usually the time frame and the percentage decline are about on par with each other, meaning that usually that market, when it's a bubble, and has a straight-up parabolic move, will fall 60 to 90% and take roughly two and a half years to, uh, uh, to, you know, to unfold on the downside. Like, for example, if you look at the Nikkei, it peaked the last trading day of 1989 and bottomed in the summer of 1992, so two and a right. half years. The Nasdaq peaked in March of 2000, uh, bottomed in October 2002. Again, uh, two, two and a half years, uh, two years, seven months. And then, for example, the longest uh, bear market I found on record was 1929, which was two years and 10 months. And the Dow lost roughly 90%. Well, the home building stocks, this index, got as low as 260 on this decline. So it lost 80% of its value, and it was two years and three months because it, it bottomed in uh, – actually, two years and two months because it bottomed in November, early December. So roughly two years, two, two years, three months. And that would be roughly two years, five months if we take early December. So my opinion is the home-building stocks don't have a lot more to fall, um, probably will only do so for at the very most five months more, like less than half a year, if it's as bad as 1929. You have to remember 1929 is the worst bear market ever. So they should be very close to bottom. And I think the key you have to look at here is the home-builders and the financials have driven the market lower. It would be like saying in 2002, well, the techs are about done finish or you know falling, but something else is going to drive the market lower. No, no, it's just like you have leaders to the upside, you have leaders to the downside. And if you look at the large cap tech stump, you know, companies, the Apples, um, you know, the Rims, the the, 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 you know, the Microsofts of the world, they're all doing very well. So really, we've actually had a very selective bear market, mostly in the financial, mortgage, you know, housing industry, and and you know, a lot of sectors are actually doing quite well. That's very interesting. The only the only thing I would say about the home builders is that the the home builders tend to lead the market, the, the actual housing market. So even though the the stocks may start finding a bottom, this the actual housing market itself lags by about a year. Yeah, I would agree with you totally because we saw the the housing market peak in roughly the first second quarter of two thousand six, and the home builders peaked in August two thousand five. So no, don't go out and buy a house based on the home builders. Like, uh, <laughs> let, let's say they bottomed in November. That 260 was the bottom. Well, that would probably mean we're still not going to get the bottom till about the third or fourth quarter next year in housing, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so, so that, that's why another reason the market could go down for a few more months because if that's the truth, you're still going to have more write-offs and the whatnot. But even and you then there's a kind of the bottoming out period of consolidation, isn't there? Of course. If you look at even the 1932 bottom, you had a nice leap off the bottom in the summer and fall of 1932. Then you yeah. kind of came back, and it took the market seven, eight months to, actually, uh, to, to base out. And actually, I talk about this, too, in, this issue, in my November issue. I talked about all these things, the length of bear markets. And uh, uh, one thing I talked about, again, in 2002, even though the market bottomed in October, it wasn't much lower than the summer bottom. At July bottom, the market hit. So really, the market spent July to about April, or July 2002 to April 2003, bottoming out. Yeah. So that's eight or nine months. So yeah, even if the home builders had bottomed in November, they're probably going to spend another half year kind of chopping here and there. Like, like, for example, I think a lot of the quality home builders, which say have gotten rid of a, a lot of their inventory, mm -hmm. um, 
are, 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 are you know, are, are worth looking at here because, uh, you know, it, like everything gets taken down in the bus and they probably, some of the quality ones probably got fall, you know, fell more than they should. An interesting uh, uh, article on it was written by Peter Lynch in one of his books, uh, I think it's the Winning on Wall Street book, where he talks mm-hmm. about the SNL crisis and he talked about even the, the good SNLs, which didn't go through a crisis, which didn't need to be bailed out, which you know didn't almost go under, they all got taken down with the bad SNLs in the early 90s. And basically, they were the ones that led the way when you finally bottomed up and, and started uh, upwards again. So mm-hmm. I think right now you want to even like, pick and choose. Like, I'll be blunt with you. Like, this may not be <laughs> probably the only resourced guy in the world doing this, but I've even been picking away here and there at the financials. Now, I don't know. If it's the bottom, but my feeling is, like I said, if this two-year, two-and-a-half-year period holds up and then we spend the next eight or nine months basing, I just can edge in here and there. And I really don't care if something falls another 10% or 15%. I'll just buy a little more there because I think we're going to go through a, a bottoming phase in, in some of that sector. Now, part of the reason I'm doing this for my own peace of mind because I'm so overweight, the resource industry, I don't think it's healthy, so I'd like to you know, branch out and diversify it out a bit. So Okay. You know. So well, interesting. This, Go on. Oh, oh, my my basic conclusion would be is that I really believe we're in the next up wave here for the gold and resource stocks, and I think we're at the in a bottoming process for the financials and home builders, and the whatnot, which should be, you know, good good for the market going forward. You know, like you, what for about, example, um, what about investment banks? Investment banks. Well, I guess they would be in the the the, the bottoming phase too. Now they may not have a big jump off the bottom because. And banks, as investment banks tend to do well near the end of something, right? Because that's when greed gets good, that's when deals get good, that's when money gets easy. But I, I would say they would be in a bottoming phase too. Like for example, if you look at Morgan Stanley and their most recent report, they've written off basically uh, everything but like one billion dollars worth of the, the subprime um, uh, debt and, or exposure. So essentially, they don't really have many shocks coming on that front. Now, the only problem would be is what happens if the subprime spreads to prime, but that really doesn't seem to be the case now. I think you have to remember housing now is going to go through the post-bubble phase sort of like uh, Japan did in the 90s. Mm. So you're going to have more shocks after the initial bounce. But I think this first phase is a subprime lower tier phase. And maybe like in five or six years from now, you'll see maybe a serious crisis and maybe the prime market. But I don't see subprime spreading out in the short term, the next year or two. So I would actually be looking at the investment banks. And I know I personally, again, I purchased a little bit of Merrill Lynch here in the low 50s. Good stuff. Well, Dave, um, it's been uh, excellent talking to you. Um, we there's, There seems to be loads more to talk about, but we've run out of time. So, uh, <laughs> as we close, do you want to give out your website? Yeah, it's addictedtoprofits.net. Uh, and uh, we have uh, three phases of subscriptions. We won't need to get into that here, but uh, you just go out check it out. We have some samples on there. I've some of like I post some of this media type thing we do right on the free part of the of the site, and uh, you'll get a good glimpse of my work. And we also have a free newsletter, which again gives you a little uh, overview of what we do. Good stuff. Well, I, I can safely say that I recommend it. Dave sometimes, uh, when he's in a generous frame of mind, sends me a copy of his newsletter, and uh, it makes <laughs> a great reading. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, Dave, thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Dominic. It was a lot of fun. Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee for Mindsight. 
with music by Manolo Camp. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our bulletin board at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com.